We'll begin with the latest exchange in a conversation that began in the summer of 2020. How many officers does the Seattle Police Department need? Kyra News Radio's Hannah Scott tells us what the city council has decided. Hannah. Uh, good morning, Dave. Yes, it was an all-day session yesterday for the Seattle City Council Budget Committee as it put the final touches on uh, what will eventually be the full budget that it votes on next week. And as it relates to SPD, there were a few significant changes. One, uh, despite a late proposal to move to stop the mayor's proposal to move the parking enforcement unit back to the Seattle Police Department away from the Seattle Transportation Department. Uh, it will, in fact, go back to the Seattle Police Department. Uh, the uh, proposal to stop that was overruled, and uh, we will see this go back to the Seattle Police Department. The issue, this was basically an effort by the mayor to fix the mistake from last year's shift of that unit over to SDOT, which ended up costing the city about $5 million dollars in um, refunds that they had to give for parking tickets because of kind of some technical technical issues that came about because of that. So we'll see the parking unit go back to SPD. Uh, the other big issue that was getting a lot of attention was the elimination of 80 unfilled Seattle police officer positions. So what we have is a total funding package for uh, 1115 total SPD officers. Um, they had 200 unfilled uh, vacant positions for SPD, and the argument was over 80 that the proposal was to to end, to eliminate. Councilmember Alex Peterson pushed to save those 80 vacant positions, citing concerns about the message eliminating them since. If you're a prospective officer or detective and you are researching departments to join, why would you join a department where its own legislative body is deleting positions from the books? And Public Safety Committee Chair Lisa Herbold stressed that these are 80 out of the more than 200 unfilled position that nobody expects will actually be filled in the next two years. It would only send the wrong signal if we're talking about um, this abrogation as something other than a good budget practice. It is in no way a uh, message to people who are considering applying to the police department. For those people, I think it's important for us to collectively signal that the, the department's plan is to hire um, 125 officers and this council is fully funding. And Council President Deborah Warra is looking to clarify the situation. What I'm worried about is some media folks are not putting this in context. They're making it sound like there's 200 jobs out there and we're quote unquote defunding. And I know that's the, the elephant in the room here. And I don't believe that that's what's happening. But I do understand the nuance of it and what Councilmember Peterson and Councilmember Nelson are getting to about the messaging. And I think that's powerful and I think that's true. But our job here today is to clarify that. So we do don't have a narrative or a mixed message or some political grandstanding going on about what we're actually doing. This is a good budget practice. Okay, but beyond this, it sounds like the total number of positions, assuming they can fill them all, will still end up being fewer than we used to have on the police department. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely fewer. Again, it's we're looking at 1,115 total uh, positions that they have the funding for, and many of those are, or there's still 120 of those that are vacant. Uh, actually, I think it went up a little, at least Herbold said 
tested. It went up to slightly yesterday. So uh, uh, there's still 130 or so that are unfilled. And it's not they're expected to have a net total by the time officers leave next year of just 15 new cops, uh, 30 over the mm. two year period in this budget. So, uh, you know, there's there, they really wanted to stress that this is not a repeat of what we saw last year with a late proposal from Lorena Gonzalez to to defund police. If, uh, and, and in fact, actually, Lisa Herbold and Deborah Juarez had voted against that uh, effort last year. This is different. They said this is about the budget transparency and the fact that they're dealing with a much larger than expected deficit in this two year budget. This shifts some more money back to the general fund. So, uh, again, they said we can always come back to the council if they do magically fill these other 120 positions mm-hmm. and they find more people that they can fill this 80 positions with. Then let's come back to the council. We can go ahead and give you some money. Uh, but the argument, of course, is that it's always harder to get that money back once it's taken away. Current News Radio's Hannah Scott. Thank you, Hannah. You bet. Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. Have your game face ready, because heading to the airport for Thanksgiving is going to be tough. So to help you get through the airport and onto your flight as easily as possible, here is Chris Sullivan with a few tips. And Dave, let's lay some groundwork here first. For those of you flying out or picking up people, tomorrow is going to be the worst day before the holiday. The busiest day is going to be Wednesday. That's the day before Thanksgiving. As always, that's typically what we see. And then returning, it's going to be the following Sunday and Monday are going to be the busiest days as everybody starts to come back from wherever they went to for their turkey days. SEA Airport spokesperson Perry Cooper says most of you should be aware of that. 155,000 people expected through the airport on Wednesday. It's a lot, but not as heavy as some of our bigger summer travel days when the airport can see up over 180,000 passengers. So what can you do to keep your blood pressure down? Cooper's first suggestion is to find a very nice person to drop you off. If you can be that person that helps drop them off at the airport so they don't have to use their car or park their car in some uh, location that they may have a hard time finding, you'll be a hero to yourself as well as everybody else that ends up using the airport. Okay, say you don't have a hero to drop you off. What's next? There are more than 12,000 parking spots in the airport parking garage. Contrary to what you might have heard or seen reported in other places, they are not sold out of spaces. Only 10% of the parking spots in the parking garage use a pre-booked system. The rest are all first come, first serve. Cooper says you can expect to waste about 30 to 40 minutes driving around the garage to find a spot on Wednesday. His suggestions? The south end of the garage is what doesn't fill up the fastest because you've got more flights on the north end. So if you check to the south end first, that's probably a great bet. And then as you go up a little bit higher into those floors like six, seven, and eight, those tend to be the last ones to be filled up as well then too. Now, you could always have the option to book a spot if you can find one at an off-site parking lot. But remember, there are about 800 to 1,000 fewer spots coming out of the pandemic from small lots that closed during the pandemic and have still not reopened. So we're a little thin there on that side. So that's outside the airport. What are the plans inside? Well, obviously expect long TSA lines. I'm talking 30-plus minute variety or even longer. And while my wife, Holly, will not like me giving you this tip because it works so well and has saved us so much time at the airport, I have to suggest that you try the SEA Spot Saver. This allows you to save a spot in the TSA line up to 72 hours before your flight. You will get a QR code that shows you a checkpoint and a 15-minute space within that checkpoint that you can then just show up to the front of the line and get in through ahead of all of those general screening folks. So say you have a 10 a.m. flight. 
and you plan to be inside the airport around 8 a.m. Well, you go to this site a few days ahead, you book a time to get into TSA around 8 a.m., and then you head right to the spot saver line. You walk right in. Even if there's an hour line behind you in general screening, there are a limited number of 15-minute windows available. Believe me, this will save you time. I've done it twice this month. And Cooper says you could even get lucky if you're in one of those hour-long lines. So when you're here at the airport and you see a really long line, you can actually go up and sign up for this. If there's space open, boom, you can jump right out of that and go to the spot saver line. This idea was created here in Seattle. Airports around the country are now implementing it. Believe me, it's a very good thing to try. One last piece of advice for surviving the airport, and this is for those of you heroes dropping people off or picking people up, always think opposite. Use the opposite road into the terminal. Picking up, grab your passenger at departures. Dropping off, get them at arrivals. Of course, you can always use light rail, pay for car services as well. Just be prepared, plan ahead, and try to keep your emotions in check, because I know it can be a very <laughs> difficult day. But yeah, use that spot saver thing. It's, it's tremendous. Huh. And, well, and, and, you know, in deference to your wife, we will just keep that tip between us. Yeah, I mean, that sounds right. You and me, you, you, me, maybe Colleen, we could use that. Yeah, nobody else uses it. Yeah. Um, no, it's great. It's a really, I can't believe that more people don't use this. I mean, we walked right in and literally walked right into the metal detector. And there was a line behind us. It's it's a really cool thing. Uh, everybody should try it. All right. Chris, thank you. Seattle's Morning News 638. Millions of Americans have served in the armed forces. For some of them, finding life and meaning after service can be difficult. Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch spoke with a local organization that aims to change that. It's our charity of the month. The group Veteran Rights is based on the idea that you can leave the armed services, but... To, to really come home, to come home to wholeness, into the heart, uh, requires a ceremony. Ryan Milkerrick, Executive Director of Veteran Rights, spelled R-I-T-E-S. And as veterans and military family, we are creatures of ritual. As humans, we're creatures of ritual. His nonprofit provides that ritual by taking veterans into the outdoors. Nature is so important because we really do believe nature is a prescription and as the greatest mirror and healer that we could have. While there, they have time for deep reflection, to think about friends and loved ones, losses, forgiveness, anything they may need to deal with. And the vets don't do this alone. They're greeted by other veterans and civilians that are acting as that community. People who understand what they've been through and the challenges they face. They're basically saying, maybe hearing for the first time, I know it was for me, that you're not broken coming in. You're not going to be fixed when you leave. You are whole and beautiful as you are. We just maybe need to bring into balance some aspects of you that are beautifully mirrored by the seasons of nature. And each vet creates a ceremony, a drum circle, a song, something that's meaningful to them as a way to symbolize they are moving ahead. Where people can grieve, where they can play, where they can sing, where they can dance, where they can lay down what no longer serves, but also pick up the parts of themselves that were suppressed by no fault of their own. He says it's a process he believes helps heal the often unseen wounds of war and service. And so we exist to really fill that gap uh, as a field hospital for the veteran's soul. Heather Bosch, Kyber News Radio. 
time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A first-year teacher at Crump Elementary School in Memphis gets helped out by her peers. CBS affiliate WREG reporter Tim Simpson has the story. Well, just walking through the neighborhood today on a beautiful, cold fall day. This is Crump Elementary School. And look who I see here. This is Linda and Janet. They tell me about their co-worker, Justice Johnson. Justice had a wreck and um, is having a really hard time getting back and forth to school. So no transportation to school now? No transportation. We had different co-workers going to her house, picking her up in the morning time, and then another co-worker would take her home in the evening time. So we all been making sure that she get to work. I grabbed the cash. At News Channel 3, we've got $300, and anonymous donors give another $700. There is $1,000. We don't waste any time. Linda and Janet go into the school to find justice, while Chief Photographer Josh Strawn and I find a place to hide. Hiding was a good idea, but this story is happening very quickly. Hey, Justice, I'm Tim Simpson from News Channel 3. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm good. Now it's Linda's turn. We love you, okay? And I'm particularly overjoyed in the way the faculty and staff swiftly came together and responded to a need. We have something for you. Three. Janet counts out $300 from News Channel 3 and... Seven from their anonymous donor. Thank you. But wait. Uh-oh, it doesn't stop there. There's more. This is from the staff of Crump Elementary because we're a family and we want you to know how much we care and how much we love you. That fact is becoming obvious. The faculty and staff members give... 1100 additional dollars to make sure Justice is touched by all the kindness. So I just feel grateful to be where I am right now. It could be worse, and I'm just grateful for where I am and appreciate the people that I have around. This $2,100 will be used toward the purchase of reliable transportation for Justice and her little brother who happens to be a student at Crump Elementary. She just got some money to help her get another car. Again, that story from CBS affiliate WREG. Doesn't the reporter have a very yes, he does. voice? I expect voices like that. Yes. Seven forty-eight, and now from the G and Ursula show, which starts at nine. Here's G Scott. Colleen was just lamenting all the blowback she got from dissing Turkey yesterday. I had no idea it was such a hot button issue, but people were like, "Replace Colleen O'Brien. She's a moron." And then you guys were talking on G and Ursula about people, neighbors who deliver food to neighbors. Yeah, r- real quick, I just want to make a comment though before you talk about that. Yeah, I was at. Um, uh, a launch, a, a golf golf facility launch. Jermaine Curse uh, mm-hmm. opened up a golf facility. Fancy. And I was talking to this guy, and he's like, "Yeah, they call me Dr." And I said, "Oh, okay." He's like, "My name's Dave Ross." <laughs> and I said, <laughs> "I said, really?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Wow." And he actually, from time to time, he gets emails and or messages that says, "Hey, are you the Dave Ross?" I hope he says yes. <laughs> and that, that would be lying, Dave. <laughs> 
All right. What well, happened with the neighbors, Brad? How funny. Uh, well, I mean, uh, just out of the blue, neighbor says, hey, we have uh, we have extra Thanksgiving dinner. They cooked an early Thanksgiving dinner. Would you like some? I said, yes, and brings a casserole with cooked mm. turkey and and stuffing and gravy and potatoes. And all I had to offer in return was like four muffins we just baked. So that, <laughs> that that's that's my dilemma when neighbors bring uh, bring free food. If you're not prepared with, you know, with something in exchange, you feel very guilty. No, because the thing you say in exchange is how delicious it. People share oh, food yeah. because they want to feed you. Yeah. Not because yeah. they want something in return. And I just, just feel it, like you should. Though. But, you know, first of all, anybody that's getting food brought to them in your door, I am envious of your block. Mm-hmm. I'm envious of your neighborhood because that lets me know that there is a lot of love and it lets me know that there's a lot of security. You feel me? That means that yeah. on your block, people are actually watching what is going on. If you have food being brought to your house, your neighbor brings you over a cup of sugar or some cookies or in your case, Thanksgiving meals. Um, I bet you less Amazon packages come up missing on your block. <laughs> or more because the items will be better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the problem, the problem is, is we say when we talk about this and I believe that this is one of the things that's really plaguing our society. We don't know our neighbors, yes. right? There's yes. a lot of us that's like, you don't know the person to your left. You don't know the person to your right. So Dave, when I hear about you getting uh, food from your neighbors, that is awesome. And as far as like you, you, what can you give in return? turn a thank you thank you lois i so appreciate you how's charles the best turkey i've ever had yeah i want to know who lois is i keep hearing lois on your show (laughs) well there's lois Mm -hmm. there's a mildred Uh uh-huh there's charles i see i got all kinds of characters that kind of exist but kind of don't (laughs) i'm i feel lucky because i recently landed in a neighborhood that is just my dream neighborhood because of that fact because the neighbors get to know each other and they share food i've had (laughs) cookies i've had muffins we've had bonfires where everybody brought ingredients for s'mores and we're sharing drinks and you know it's ideal because the neighborhood i lived in prior to that for about five years it was like pulling teeth just to get people walking by to look up and wave and say hello. I had a couple of neighbors Mm -hmm. that we were close-ish to, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted, was this feeling of we're watching out for each other, you have extra, you share, Mm -hmm. and you share with everybody. And they even had a neighborhood barbecue in July. It was so cool. But these are all plans, right? Like Mm -hmm. the neighborhood barbecue, everybody comes and there's somebody. Have you identified the nosy neighbor yet on your block? Yes. Okay, you don't need to tell who they are, but I, as a child, as a kid, I used to complain about the nosy neighbor. Why? Because they told all your business. You know he had some folks over. Now today, if you have the nosy neighbor, and if you are the nosy neighbor, I just want you to know you are appreciated. Every block needs the nosy neighbor. The nosy neighbor is what makes every, that is the best security in the world. But we've also talked about how heavily cameraed my new neighborhood is too. I felt like, you know, I was in the Truman Show or something when I first moved in. But now I have my own camera. Do you feel so. safe on your block? I do. <laughs> you know I mean? Although what? my neighbor just posted this huge coyote had walked through our neighborhood. There's a coyote in your neighborhood? Yes, I had no idea they were coming into this. Well, I knew they were coming into the suburbs, but not that's in how my you know, neighborhood. That's how you know it's another nice, safe community. When a coyote <laughs> comes through it. You know how many times growing up, man. 
You see that coyote? Never. Never? So coyotes are a sign of affluence and comfort? Coyotes be like, "Mm mm-mm, I'm hanging out in Mercer Island, Sammamish, uh, Edmonds. They've got the good trash. I'm going to hang out by the water. (laughs) They got that good stuff. Uh, You you were handing out money for Halloween. I imagine your neighborhood is is nice and, and sharing as well. I mean... It's cool. I mean, I'm still down in Tacoma right now where, you know, there's, you know, it's been a little rough lately down in Tacoma. 40th, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, it's solid. It's cool. Let me ask this, Colleen. Here's how you know your neighborhood's good. Colleen, if I were to, let's say, at 11 o'clock in the daytime, just park in front of your house and just stay there parked, how fast would somebody notify you to, hey, um. What's that car in front of your house? That's a good neighborhood. That's the neighborhood I want. You know what we won't do, though? We won't call the cops unnecessarily just because somebody's in the neighborhood. No, you you don't want to call the cops. You just want to just, you know, check everything out. Dave. Yeah, this would be a comfortable conversation for you because this is life on Mercer Island, right? Well, pretty much. Although we did have an aggressive owl at one point. <laughs> See what I'm saying? <laughs> no coyotes, but there was a sign saying "Beware, aggressive owl." Look up as you walk. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're going to have your show as normal at uh, nine o'clock today? Yeah, I am. I'm going to suggest people tune in at nine o'clock. All right. Oh, the generous really? Ringing yeah. endorsement. Man, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Wait a minute. Do you like tuning into our show? Do I like what? Do you ever tune into our show? Do I ever tune into your show? Yeah. Yeah. It's my. It's sort of my drive home. Listener. What do you think about the show? I think it's an amazing show. Oh, thank you. I learned all sorts of things about relationships, <laughs> free food, yeah. and of course, how to dress stylishly. You guys make me laugh. Mm. Just full-bellied. You and Ursula and <laughs> Chef. It's a good show. All right. See you guys. Tuesday mornings, we go live to Washington, D.C., and investigative reporter at the New York Times, David Farenthold. I'm reading that Kevin McCarthy might not have the votes to become Speaker of the House. What's behind that, David? I think this is just the beginning of the drama we're going to see when you have a combination of two things. One, you and I talked about this a really weak leader in McCarthy, somebody whose whole MO has been to let the crazies be crazy uh, and not to to put people in line. And now he has a really thin House majority where he needs people to get in line. Uh, And so, you know, those things are going to be hard to mesh. I still do think that McCarthy will be elected speaker, but just because there's nobody else who has, you know, anything like the support McCarthy has, even if he doesn't have it now. Um, But he's going to have to make so many deals to get there that I think he's going to be you know, a weak speaker from day one. I saw a headline that the, the centrists, Republican centrists in the House, are the ones who are now angry and, and see themselves as the as the kingmakers. And so, well, first of all, is that the case? And, and what policies in particular are are they uh, are they going to push? Well, I, I do think that they have seen the right wing get, get, get a lot of attention and the right wing call themselves kingmakers. And so the centrists are not saying, well, hey, we're not chopped liver. You know, we're not going to be yeah. we're not just going to sit around and let you guys push this the new speaker around. So you know, they, everybody has leverage. I think McCarthy may have a margin of four or five votes. So, you know, I think everyone is going to you know stake out whatever they want their claims to be. In the case of the centrists, it's probably going to be things like let's not shut down the government. Let's not, you know, try to uh, destroy the, the the world economy with a debt ceiling fight. Um, but I don't know. They, in the past, centrists have been more willing to go along with things than the right wing, just because their interest is in keeping the country together and not yeah. blowing things up for a, you know, for make a point. So their so their agenda is let's do more normal stuff, which is pretty radical these days. Pretty radical. I, I, so. 
you know, McCarthy, everything from, you know, just the daily sort of votes you have to take to keep the House moving, you know, committee chairs, everything is going to be a fight and a negotiation for him. And like I said, he's not somebody like Pelosi, who is or Mitch McConnell in the Senate, who is familiar with and known for getting things done. He's not feared. You know, he's not respected. He's somebody who's going to have to, to yeah. like fight over every one of these old details. Now, could Democrats play a role in this? Because uh, I, I also saw a headline to that, that the Democrats might be thinking of forming some sort of unholy coalition. And you remember that listener who suggested that the Democrats could could uh, could uh, vote with centrist Republicans to put somebody like Liz, Liz Cheney in charge. Is anything crazy like that on the table? I don't think that's going to happen. I just think that the Republicans want a Republican to be elected. And, and I think they're they're not going to anybody who would be acceptable to enough Democrats that you could get all the Democrats to vote for that person would probably be far enough to the left that you couldn't get any Republican votes. Um, but I do think we're going to see legis- if anything passes in this Congress, it's going to be things like well, this happened a lot on Paul Ryan and John Boehner when there were sort of a lot of right wing Tea Party folks. Anything that really passes is probably going to have a lot of Democratic votes and be something that the right wing is mad about. Um, so, you know, I guess that's some glimmer of hope for actual governance in this Congress is that you could get, you know, coalition on more centrist stuff. I just don't know if it's going to happen, partly because McCarthy may feel like the, the right wing will pull out the rug from him on, and try to go against him as speaker if he lets too much centrist stuff through. Mm. OK, what about the status of some kind of national abortion ban or something else that's on the uh, I, I guess I'll call it the Christian agenda? You know, I think that that may be a thing that the right wing demands of McCarthy, either as a condition of making him speaker or just to go along with everyday governance, is that he give a vote for that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I obviously, if it has the votes to pass the House, which I don't think it does, uh, it would not go anywhere in the Senate. So I, I, that would be you'd think that'd be stupid for them to do something that would be that divisive, just thinking ahead to 2024. But, you know, when I covered the last sort of cheap, you know, right wing Congress takeover in 2010, there's a lot of things that were stupid for their long-term political prospects, but they felt like, hey, this is what we got elected to do, so we're going to do it. Yeah. Did you read that story about the um, the allegations that justices on the Supreme Court are being lobbied by conservative groups, specifically mentioning Justice Alito, who it sounds like anyway from this uh, story I read, I think, was it the New York Times or was that the it was Rolling Times? Times. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that uh, through his wife may have leaked a Hobby Lobby opinion back in 2014 to some religious sympathizers. What's behind that? That was a new revelation to me, and I think that almost everybody was that everybody knows that the Roe versus Wade opinion, which was written by Alito, was leaked several months early and wound up in the hands of Politico, but that we didn't know until, recent, until the Times reported it. Then in 2014, and the, another decision written by Alito, this Hobby Lobby decision having to do with the contraception, another win for the right wing, was also leaked, not to a news media outlet, but to the people who'd been pushing, you know, to the plaintiffs in that case, the people who had won the case. They knew about it months earlier. And so then the guy, this, this sort of a, a minister who was sort of a, a right wing activist, told the Times, look, I have a network where I try to influence the court sort of sub rosa through you know, contacts, fundraisers, social contacts of the justices and, and, and targeting people like Alito, especially. I, yeah, I don't know if Samuel Alito, very Republican justice, needs to be shoved in the direction of overturning Roe versus Wade. Right. But it is an interesting look at the way that people, you know, the, the Supreme Court is seen as this, you know, above influence. You know, it's influenced only through its arguments. But there have been a number of people, apparently for a number of years, who've seen it as just a bunch, another political body that you can influence through like social cues and, and uh, you know, other kinds of contacts 
outside the normal, formal channels of influence. Yeah, this has some Democratic members of Congress demanding some sort of hearings or investigations, but I, they, I mean, the Constitution says they don't have any power over the court except perhaps impeachment, right? They could impeach a justice. Other than that, they've got nothing. And I don't, they don't, definitely don't have the votes to impeach any justices. I mean, there's no Republicans. You would need Republican votes uh, in the Senate to go to impeach, uh, any, to convict anybody, uh, and, and Republican votes in the House to uh, impeach them. And I don't think that any Republican is going to vote to open up a seat on the Supreme Court while Joe Biden is president, unless one of the justices goes on a killing spree or something really drastic. Yeah. And finally, on the uh, the long anticipated Hunter Biden investigation, uh, I hear that the the contents of his laptop are uh, practically in every bookstore at this point. Uh, (laughs) Is this going to be a I mean, just give me your your professional opinion as a Pulitzer Prize winner. (laughs) Is this going to be a serious investigation? Is there some smoke there and could it lead to uh, the president himself? there will be a lots of investigations. I mean, if you remember the Benghazi inquiry, and this is such a disservice to the people that died in Benghazi to compare these things, but I think that Republicans see that as a time, you know, as a, as a parallel. They see that as, you know, if we can let a long, noisy investigation into Hunter Biden, that will damage Joe Biden going into 2024. It, it might happen. And I do, I would guess, I think it's very possible that they will look in that laptop and find bad things about Hunter Biden. Everybody knows there's lots of Hunter Biden has, you know, done a lot of terrible things. I don't think just based on everything we've seen before that there is going to be a leak to Joe Biden. And that to me is where the parallel to Benghazi breaks down, because in Benghazi, you had Hillary Clinton, who was secretary of state at the time, making decisions that impacted what happened in Benghazi. I just don't see any link to Joe Biden. Joe Biden knows who his son Hunter is. Uh, and has known that for a long time. And the idea that he might have been participating in one of Hunter Biden's incredibly half-baked influence schemes as seems insane to me. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I, I just think that it limits the ceiling of these investigations that I don't see a nexus to Joe Biden. David Farenthold from The New York Times. David, thank you. Thank you. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And when you think about the holidays and holiday sights and sounds and smells and food, you think about, well, I think about, of course, pumpkin spice and uh, nutmeg and peppermint and uh, chocolate especially. But there are some people who the first first word that comes to mind is tamales. And uh, that includes Mickey Gomez, who I understand in in, in addition to being our uh, traffic expert, you're also our tamale expert. Let me tell you, I love tamales. And you are so right, Dave. When I think about the holidays, I think about tamales because I grew up with my grandmother, my mom, my tias, and my cousins making them in my grandmother's second kitchen in her house. Huh. There's two kitchens in your grandmother's house? Because of the fact that her tamales were just, shall I say, legendary in mm-hmm. Texas, um, they had to make a second kitchen in order for her to meet the demand. What? How big yes. is this family? <laughs> well, the demand wasn't just for my family. It was oh. because she would sell them. Oh, I so, see. This was a business right. then. This became a this became a holiday business. And right around the week or two weeks before Thanksgiving, my grandmother and my tias and my mom and tias are aunts, in case you didn't know, they would purchase the hog heads. They would also go and buy the ojas, which are the corn husks, uh-huh. and the masa. 
and giant tubs of manteca, which is lard. And then they would start working in the other kitchen. And no one was allowed in there unless you were a part of the tamale assembly line. Okay, now let's just let's just start with the hogsheads here. So tamales, mm-hmm. holiday tamales require a hogshead? They can. Traditionally, uh, in my family, we would do hogsheads. Or my favorites were the chicken, the pollo. What part of the head do you use? <laughs> All of it. You use the whole head. All of it. She would get a hog head and she would boil it on the stove. She had the most amazing stove and she would have these huge bins filled with hogs heads. And then the meat would just fall off uh-huh. and uh, and then she would grind the meat. All of it. So so as a kid, you, did you participate? See, the thing is, at least in, in my culture, we try to make sure that the food doesn't have any head on it by the time no. it gets to the kitchen. And so, no. so but, but you had the actual heads and, and you were okay with that, huh? I mean, well, I mean, in the beginning, I can remember being a little girl and having one of my best friends stay the night. And I forgot to warn her that as we make our way through the kitchen to Uh my bedroom, we were going to pass the kitchen table, which had hogsheads thawing on the kitchen table. And so when we walked in and she saw them, she absolutely screamed, what are these people doing? What is going on? And I said, oh my God, I didn't warn you. It's the male season in my culture and my family. Yeah, that would (laughs) have been me. um, I I can't even look a fish in the eye at the Pike Place Market. (laughs) So, okay, I just want to be clear on that because uh, let's be clear who you're dealing with here. I just recently learned that you're not supposed to eat the corn husk when you get the tamale, okay? So this is the the level of innocence you're dealing with here. So this so, is the rule number one. You are not supposed to eat the corn husk. Okay. okay. I know. I got no. that now. I figured that out. So, but what's the difference between, uh, you know, the, the, the holiday tamale and the normal tamale? Well, we don't generally make tamales outside of the holidays. I mean, oh, really? I'm sure there are some. Right. I mean, because tamales have become a part of the traditional Mexican celebration of La Posadas, which is the commemoration of Mary and Joseph's search for shelter before Jesus's birth. Mm-hmm. That's why families, uh, I would say, all across you know the Southwest and in Texas make tamales. And because my grandmothers were so popular she would start, like I said, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, and she would make anywhere between five and 10,000 dozen. Yikes. 10,000 dozen? Yes. This was a huge, huge deal in my family, and it is quite the production. You need hojas, you need masa, you need manteca, and you have to decide, are you going to do carne, frijoles, pollo, queso, dulces, which is basically corn husks, dough, you need uh, lard, you need the meat, or you could or you could do sweet tamales, which I'm not a fan of. And you need a lot of equipment, and you need, it's a big assembly line. It, ta- it takes a lot. And just to let you guys know, you know, tamales originated. They're, they're, they're not something that the, that, the, that the Mexicans, you know, just came up with this century. I mean, tamales date back to like 8,000 to 5,000 B.C., and they were adopted by the Guatemalans and in Mexico and the rest of Latin America. So this this has been around for a really long time. Well, I assume it was because it was very difficult back then to get Tupperware, so you had to use the corn husks to That's right. To hold yeah. the food. And please, Dave, don't ever eat the corn husk. I just want to make sure you know that. <laughs> Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> a good tamale, by the way, when you open up the corn husk, mm-hmm. should just slide right slide out right and out. into your hand. But I'm surprised it's it's considered to be a holiday dish because I see food trucks selling tamales year round. 
Well, yeah, they, they do make tamales year round because they're so good. But in my family, traditionally, this is tamales season and I am looking for good tamales. I, I, I'm not going to say that I don't necessarily want to go to a restaurant and buy tamales because I would if they're good. But I would rather buy tamales from someone who says, hey, my grandma's selling tamales for like $11 a dozen <laughs> like that. That's those are the tamales that I want. Mickey Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.